This is the Mindful Experiment Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Vic. Excited that you're here. This podcast is all about diving deep into the mind and understanding this experiment or this game we call life. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part, for every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. The biggest battle we will ever have to face is the battle between you and you. It's the battle of taking your mind to that limit and then breaking through. On the Mindful Experiment podcast, we will share concepts, universal laws, and interviewing individuals who have done just that, who have gone through the dark times and through those moments allowed their light to shine bright. I'm your host, Dr. Vic Manzo, and I want to thank you for listening to the podcast and taking this journey with me as we discover different avenues to break through those limits, expand your reality, and evolve into the person you desire to be. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. Hello, everyone. This is Dr. Vic, and I want to thank you for tuning in and listening to The Mindful Experiment. In this podcast, I had the joy and pleasure to geek out with Nick Jenkel. Nick is an award-winning thought leader, author, and professional speaker. He has advised organizations like Number 10 Downing Street, Kellogg's, HSBC, Microsoft, and WWF. He's been invited to speak at prestigious Aspen Ideas Festival, TEDx, and Google headquarters. A former elite scientist and medic, Nick brings the latest science into his work, cognitive, behavioral, emotional, introceptive, and blends it with timeless wisdom 
and uber practical tools for change. He has spent 30 years developing an advanced brain-based transformational methodology, the Switch On Way, which provides a rigorous and proven pathway for unleashing transformation in any area of leadership or life. It has provide, provides individuals and leaders with 90-plus powerful tools and practices to master themselves. He's a highly acclaimed international keynote speaker who has spoken all over the world to audiences as Lego, SAP, Google, Kellogg, Smuckers, Fujitsu, Rook, and an economic summit, amongst many others. A broadcaster, Nick hosted his own BBC TV show, has been featured in the FT and the Sunday Times, and has taught on the MBA programs of LBS. Oxford, Science Po, UCL, and Yale. He has been on BBC World Service, CBS, and Hay House Radio. I'm telling you, this guy is absolutely amazing, a, a gem to have around. I loved interviewing him and just connecting with him, his wealth and depth of knowledge, philosophy, different avenues of thought, and bringing all the aspects that he takes into with his book, Spiritual Atheist, and so much more, was just a joy to have him on. And this is only part one of a part two series that I had the joy to have. So with no further ado, here is Nick Jenkel. So Nick, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you so much. Really excited. Uh, I'm, I'm so excited to have you on. I mean, uh, when, I, when I saw the whole term spiritual atheist, it really caught my attention. That's really unique in itself. And I thought that'd be a great opening to the podcast just to dive in and just share a little bit about what, what really is a, a, and I know it's kind of being made a loaded question, but what is, what is like, where did you come up with the term spiritual atheist? How did that like evolve? <laughs> well, I'll tell you a story which um, I originally opened the book with, but I, I took it out in the end. Um, which is the night the book came to me. So the book came to me very quickly. Um, in the space of about two hours, I went from having a conversation, which I'll, I'll tell you about in a second, to having all the chapters of the book literally downloaded onto, I was, you know, typing on my iPhone and notes. And the chapters only changed. One chapter was added for the two years of writing after that night. Only one chapter was added. Nothing was changed. No, no wow. chapter was changed. And so the conversation I was having with was like this. The guy who I was having a conversation with was a very religious man. He's also a soldier. Um, and he, and I'm not a soldier, I should add. I'm, not, I'm <laughs> kind of not like a soldier or anything. Uh, so I'm kind of unsoldierly. And, um, but we've been put together, um, actually by my dear and wonderful mother, because she thought him and I would have a connection. So I'm sitting next to this very religious soldier guy. Um, and he's saying, well, what do you do for a living? I said, well, you know, try to explain personal development, leadership development, and then philosophy, wisdom, spiritual teaching. And he said, well, hold on a minute. So you're, you're spiritual. And I said, yeah, deeply, profoundly guided by a, you know, real intense experience of, of, um, spirituality. Um, he said, well, how can you be spiritual if you're not religious? You know, I'm a spiritual person, but I'm part of a, of a, of a very organized religion. In that moment, I went, this is something I need to be able to explain to people that you can be profoundly religious. Um, sorry, profoundly spiritual without having any religion at all. And when I say religion, I also mean even sort of modern day religions like new age, um, or even science as a religion. And you can still be really spiritual and really live through that spirituality every day, make decisions from that spirituality, not just kind of, having a nice um, incense burner on your, you know, on your uh, mantelpiece. 
Um, and so he, and he couldn't, could not get his head around this at all. And I was like, boom, that's what I got to write. And I was actually writing another book at the time, which I've just returned to now. And I just had to write this book instead. And so for the last now three years, I've been developing this book, publishing this book, marketing this book. And, um, that's a whole other story. <laughs> but <laughs> the idea was basically when you say you're spiritual, not religious, what does that mean? You believe nothing, anything, anything goes, nothing, you know, what is it? What is it? So one of the cheeky sort of marketing hooks that we originally had for the book was the Bible for the spiritual, not religious. So mm-hmm. what does it mean? What do you, what do you sign up to when you say spiritual, not religious? And for me, I wanted something much deeper and real and tangible than just a Facebook, you know, click point um, uh, for my entire worldview. So that was the kind of, that was the night the book came to me and, and um, they've just been following that intuition to write it since. I love that. And then I've read your book, about 90% of it. And uh, I, you and I have a very similar beginning or outcome uh, started point. Just the religions were different. Mine was Italian mm-hmm. Roman Catholic. I think yours was Judaism, correct? Yeah, that's right. And um, so how did that, like, because I love the, because when I was reading it, I was like, man, these are the things I was going through. Holy cow, <laughs> these are the questions I was asking. I, and then I saw the different uh, the religions you were like talking about. I'm like, yep, I've been through that one. I've studied that one. I studied that one. Um, how did that like help propel you though? Like, cause you know, for me, I'll just say it, share it this way. Like when I was so, str- so hardcore into uh, Italian Roman Catholic, trying to go deeper to find truths and so forth. Um, there came a point where it repelled me, but I was appreciative of the repelling because it helped me open up my mind to other areas. Did you have that kind of an experience? Mm, I mean, that's a beautiful, such a beautiful way of saying it. I, I, I can now see that that's what happened. But at the time, I was just repelled. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, so I was, I was, I did a bar mitzvah as you do in the uh, Jewish scenario, and um, you know, prayer stuff, whatever Hebrew. And then I joined a, a sort of program for thirteen to fifteen year olds, um, really studying a bit more depth in the, in 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 the Old Testament and and the philosophy and the history. And during that period, I was also kind of awakening as a teenager. I was 13, 14. Um, I was kind of depressed. I, I was having psychotherapy. My parents divorced when I was very young, blah, 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 a bit of bullying, uh, et cetera. And so I did go deeper. I was like, rabbis, tell me more about this thing. Where's the, where's the juice was what I was basically asking. Where's the bit that's going to salve my broken heart? Uh, and there really wasn't any. They couldn't give me any. And um, they didn't give me any pointers into the mystical side of things, the spiritual side of things. And I just went through a period. I went, Oh my God, this stuff is just not helpful. And also rationally, as I, my mind was growing, um, doesn't seem very real or true. I'm out. But and I went really big out. I was like, <laughs> boom. And I actually basically self-destructed by, um, so the group of us who were doing this, uh, 13 to 15 year old program at the synagogue were asked to run a whole, um, service for the congregation so four five hundred people center of london very beautiful synagogue and i was chosen to do the sermon uh unsurprisingly because i have a, a propensity to talk and um in that sermon i basically said the belief in a sort of father god you know just made no sense to me i brought in freud i brought in marx and um you know testament to the jewish culture I wasn't sort of, you know, there was no fatwa put on my head. Um, I was welcomed back 
you know, many years since to have dinners or whatever there, uh, because people appreciate a, an inquiring mind. Um, but I definitely sort of self-destructed my religious community life in that one sermon. Wow. I love it. That's, uh, Definitely repelled you, huh? <laughs> I was out. Um, but I, I mean, you know, I, I actually had to sort of put up some boundaries up with my family saying, I'm not coming to those events. I'm not coming into that. You know, and now I'm happy to go to synagogue. I'm happy to go to church. I'm happy to go to anywhere where there's any form of prayer because I can find within it some space for myself to go inside and I can, I can honor it. But the time I had to, I felt I had to, really wash the ideology out of my mind so I could think freely for myself. I love how you bring that up because that's that's exactly what happened to me. It was, I had to just fully, fully step away and I jumped into Buddhism, Hinduism. Mm -hmm. I tapped a little bit into Judaism, um, studied a couple other religions and cultures. And now I can like, now I sit there and go, okay, where's the good in this? I just got, there is some good. And I always tell people, because I'll be asked too, like, Oh, Doc, I know you're, you're, you're very on the spiritual side of things. You're very this way. Um, so I know you don't really practice a religion. I said, well, my religion's nature. So we, we, and I'm like, but, <laughs> um, but at the same token, I'm like, uh, but yeah, I go, but the religion has a place. And I always tell people, if this is what you want to side to and say, this is what your, your, your faith is and what you want to believe in, I go, if it makes you a better person, go with it. Like, let right. it, you know, there's good in there. There are some good. Um, but yeah, I love how you bring that up. I think, I think there's a lot of good. Yeah. Um, the challenge becomes when people become dogmatic about yes. their ideology, yes. attempt to push it on other people. And for me, the quintessential religious truth, which is actually the, the mystical truth of our oneness, of our interconnection, of our, of our being in the world together as one, uh, as nature, as, as uh, the philosopher Spinoza said, God or nature, doesn't matter what you call it, it's the one thing. Yes. Um, as soon as that starts getting covered up in lots of rules that then try to get projected onto you and what you can do and what you can't do. So I've, I've had people since this book has published, I've had people take the time to go onto my website, find the contact page, write out the contact form and tell me I'm going to hell all that effort, uh, because of that ideology. Um, and that's where it becomes, um, challenging. That's the atheist part of me that says, you know, we don't do ideology. Um, in, in the book, I talk about principles and, and I actually ended up writing, uh, for anyone who reads the book, there's a, a, a freebie afterwards to download, um, which is a, a manifesto, if you like, of what a spiritual atheist could um, believe in, but they're principles, not rules. So if someone wants to reinterpret them and make them more appropriate for your country or your culture or your gender, knock yourself out. Um, you know, but they're not rules. And as soon as you have rules, rules try and become eternal. And the world's changing so quickly, nothing's really forever. You know, nothing's eternal. You can't say for all, you can't say 2000 years ago in, in the Middle East that these rules are now going to be really appropriate in, you know, a Canadian winter or in um, Mexico or um, in the climate change world of, of 2050. Just impossible. Yes. I, I couldn't agree with you more with that. Yeah, and it's, and it's one of those things. And just for the listeners, so because when you hear the word atheist, that means, uh, and correct me if I'm wrong, is it is it more atheist is just a term that states that uh, you don't believe in a God per se, or is it just in your realm, it's more of that, the godly figure that we've all been taught through religion? Mm, great question. So in the book, I set up 
two forms of atheism, um, obviously spiritual atheism, mm-hmm. um, which is the form that I'm, I don't know, marshalling, discussing, thinking about. Um, and then I talk about this other form of atheism called, I call materialist atheism, yes. which is where atheism has become now in the modern world, you know, in London and New York and, and, uh, I don't know, Chicago and Paris. It's, it's a, it's a, an ideology of its own. So for me, atheism itself just means, whether you're spiritual or otherwise, atheism itself just means you don't believe in a personal God, like a, a being that has agency and, wants stuff for you and talks to you as a human talks to a human um, and has a priest, a priesthood who say they're more, more close to this God than you are and have some rules for you. And, and there's ideology or, or a revealed book, which is the word of this personal God. Mm-hmm. So that for me is where I don't go. I can't get involved in that at all. Um, and that's still the same as when I was 15. What I have realized is atheism overstepped its mark. And it went from being saying there is no personal God to saying essentially anything that science can't prove or, and logic can't prove doesn't exist. It's made up. It's bullshit. It's nonsense. And mm-hmm. that's where I went myself in my twenties and it ended up bringing me to my knees and depression and fibromyalgia and all these other things that, because that is fundamentally not accurate, that, that, that form of atheism, which, which, um, is really very powerful in the, in the circles that I'm, involved in um you know these big cities big city atheism is very um aggressive towards spirituality gotcha um and that i think you know you you chuck out the baby with the bathwater, and that baby is the baby of all life's greatest experiences love peace connection relationships collaboration creativity and if you throw away that baby then you've thrown away everything and then you wonder why there's depression everywhere and anxiety everywhere and businesses that aren't sustainable and all that sort of stuff. No, it's so true. I mean, I have a couple of friends that are atheists, but they're very like all about, you know, everything is dependent upon me and what I want to do. And I've had discussions and I'm like, do you believe there's like a greater force, a greater power, the, um, something that unifies us all together, where we come mm-hmm. from, where we stem from. And it's, it's interesting. They'll always, at least the, I'm speaking only for them. Um, <laughs> they, he goes, like, I, I know somebody will be listening, be like, but that's not what I believe in atheism. And I, was, I want to get into all that. So, but they, but they'll be like, I know there's something greater. And they go, I know that within my bones and in my soul, but they just say that everything is dependent on me and not another figure that's going to condemn me if I don't follow a certain way or, you know, do this or do that. I'm more, I'm freer than what uh, has been projected upon how they were raised. And they were raised through mm. also very strongly. Mm. And uh, I just find it fascinating. So when you brought that up, I was like, when you said the type of atheism leans more to the spiritual side of things, I was like, yeah, I could totally, I could totally, I see that with some, uh, in, in some realms of where uh, in my reality, I guess you want to call it my friends that I have. So, Well, in many ways I wrote the book for those kind of people initially. That was the first sort of energy, which is, I have lots of people I know and I meet, I, you know, I travel around the world and I do keynotes all over the place and I meet so many people. And the way I would put it is this, their heart feels this force, this interconnected field of consciousness, which we call love. Mm-hmm. The heart feels it. The mind doesn't know it and can't know it and therefore rejects it. Yep. And then they're stuck between these two places. They, they, they got to, you know, they hold their newborn baby. They go, walk up a mountain, um, they eat uh, amazing uh, Chicago pizza, et cetera, et cetera. And they feel, oh my God, this is joy. This is bliss. This is love. This is connection. 
But then the, the logical mind doesn't understand that because it hasn't been given a way to understand it. And this book initially was like, we've got to give these minds a way to allow their, the hearts to also have a voice in people's mind, in people's beings and people's lives. Um, but as I wrote it, I also thought, well, another place where this book is really powerful is if you're spiritual, not religious, if you kind of know that you definitely believe in something, but you don't know what and you know how it fits with your love of science and your love of, of reason and your love of all the great things that, that our minds have brought the world that, that too. So it's really bringing together these two worlds. That's the core of my work is how do you bring together what your heart feels and what your mind knows? And I actually, towards the end of the writing of the book, I had this number of epiphanies. And actually for me, book writing is really a form of practice. Um, and, uh, uh, apologies for that. Um, and I had this epiphany, which is not only is spirituality absolutely aligned with science more and there's, so therefore there's no war between you know religion and science are at war but science and spirituality don't have to be no and then i went one step further and realized that if if in my language spirituality is the study of our inner experience our subjective inner interior experience and science is the study of our exterior molecules matter then how can you live in the world without knowing both together and bringing them both together within you? How can you make a decision about your health, for example, without both understanding the latest neuroscience, the latest pharmacology, the latest studies of, of you know, twins for 50 years telling you what is really good and bad, but not just relying on that, also then tapping into your own meditational experience, your contemplation, your intuition and going, so this is the science, this is what I, I feel and this is what I'm going to do about it. So that comes up with things like everything from immunizations to cancer treatments to uh, there's a big, big bit in the book, which three people have asked me about recently, circumcision, all these decisions we have to make. You can't make them with either science or spirituality alone. You have to bring them together and make sense of it together within you. And then we become whole again because we have a mind um, that likes to study the outside world. And we have a heart that likes to experience the inside world. So that was kind of, for me, a massive revelation was they're not just, they just don't just fit together. They, they, we need them to come together within us to, to get through the challenges of the world today. No, totally. I totally agree with you there. And I think that can help solve a lot of the modern uh, great problems in society. And uh, even from just my background in chiropractic, I mean, you're speaking right. of left brain, right brain, right? Right. Left brain is logical, wants to be predictive, wants to see, he makes certain outcomes and know how it goes. It compartmentalizes, he ducks things. And then you have right brain, which is all intuition and heart center. It's this, the connection to the spiritual side of things. And right. so um, in the work I do, it's all about balancing the brain in, in what we call hemispheric synchronicity. And once you get there, now you're in a balanced, more elevated state, a higher conscious level, higher planes, and you can bring the both worlds together. Mm. And so I love how you, you, you shared that because, uh, I'm like, yep, that, that's, that's, that's a universal principle. What we talk about in chiropractic, um, and how we, um, um, do that in that sense. And I agree with you all together. I mean, we have to, I think what we happen in society and I, and I'm assuming, you know, where you're at in, in Chicago and all that and all areas, it's, it's all the common things in the modern society is, is we've trusted too much and let logic and left brain take us too far. Right. Right. I know you will agree on that. And it's Absolutely. one of those things where and I love in your book, you talk about like bringing the other side into the table and bringing that into the conversation, into the equation yeah. to yeah. really have a, a better experience. Yeah. I believe that the, the secret to life is to harmonize 
two things within us. So, um, and they kind of seem to be all echoes of the same thing. So for me in the book, I talk about spirituality being essentially about consciousness and I, and science being about matter. And we are both material beings and conscious beings. And so the work of philosophy, the work of, of meditation, the work of life is to bring them together. But then you see them again in other ways. So then you see creativity versus getting stuff done, right? Mm-hmm. Two parts of us. No business, no career can work without both of them working together, right? And if you do too much getting stuff done and not enough creativity, you end up dry and, and bored and over, overwhelmed. Too much creativity, not enough getting stuff done. And you're an artist who's churning out amazing stuff and no one's buying it. So you're living in, in poverty. So, and, you know, neither of those are particularly great. So, and then you talk about business. Again, the same tension between profit and purpose, you know, changing the world, making like making some money so I can continue to pay the, the bills. So there's this, there's this, um, seam running through from the smallest to the biggest parts of our being, which for me, are what is, is, is this spiritual atheist stuff, you know, and I could have, I could have called the book mind uh, and matter. I could have called it consciousness and science. I could have called it many different things that spoke to those two parts of us. I could have called it intuition and instinct. Um, uh, but I chose spiritual atheist because it, it sort of put me out into a conversation with a bit of edge, you know, with a bit of, um, pizzazz. Although I have to say it's, definitely been a challenging book to come to bring to the world because the atheists are like, Oh, spirituality. You're just a woo woo wacko job. Yeah. Um, we don't believe in you. We don't trust you anymore. We think you're nuts. And then the spiritual people are like, Oh, atheist, you heartless, soulless bastard. <laughs> and, uh, it's really, <laughs> and the whole point is what I'm saying is we've got to come together. We've got to bring it together. We've got to bring it together. And, uh, it's definitely been uncomfortable. And that's why I loved your title of your book so much, especially when I started to look at it and everything. I was just like, this is, I, I like, I'm like, I was really, you got me even curious. I was like, okay, spiritual and atheist. I'm like, all right, this is going to be an interesting one. <laughs> let me see where he's going first before I let my wheels start turning. Right. And right, right. I love I'm how you did, you did it. I'm glad you did it. Waited. <laughs> yes, I usually do for the most part. Uh, I've learned over time. Um, but it's even cool. I mean, even like, like, you know, being on the science side, you talked about that a lot. Can someone who is like really deep in science, like, you know, they just study all the new quantum physics stuff out there and all this mm-hmm. new, cause I had a, a guy I was interviewing and he is like massively into the quantum physics side. But what's cool though, is he's starting to open up now to spirituality because of what's coming out with it. But, um, can they be a spiritual th- atheist? Mm. Yes, 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 definitely. I'm, I mean, I'm like, bring it. Come, you know, it's the church of nobody. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> there's no priest here. You, you want to be, I'm just calling it something that, that kind of works. Uh, but, you know, we can change the name. You know, I'm like, uh, there's no, no one's branding this. Um, obviously, I got, I'd like to sell some books, um, but but it's a broad church. I think the 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 key for me always comes down to some form of extremism and absolutism. Gotcha. Um, and that would include spiritual atheists who say, "Well, this is the only answer." You know, that would be for me dogma- dogmatic. Um, it's a work in progress. It's an evolution. It's a it's something that we can engage with, but you know, it's definitely not mine. Um, so, so it's, it's, you know, I, I just, I'll, I'll speak about my relationship with my wife actually, cause this is interesting com- you know, where 
you know, we, we are on the edges of our capacity. So she comes from California. She's much more comfortable than I have been with being a kind of, um, uh, quite sort of new age alternative in her everything. Mm-hmm. Um, and she believes a hot, she, so for example, this is where one of the crunch points. So to a traditional atheist scientist, if someone said, well, I get, you know, intuition or a sense of, of guidance within me, they'd be like, that is rubbish. That's just nonsense. There's nothing there. To a new age person would be like, yep, that's your spirit guide or, or whatever saying what you say. And my wife definitely believes she has spirit guides, but me in this right in the middle place, I come from the place as a teaching place to say intuition is key. If you, we need to have intuition to make decisions. We need something internally, not just reason and data. We need something else. We need emotional connectivity that comes from quietness and listening. If my wife wants to call that a spirit guide, if you want to call it the voice of God, if you want to call it whatever you want to call it, go ahead, knock yourself out. What's important is to know that it's important and we need it to make decisions. And that's something that I think even the greatest scientists realize as part of their science has been intuition, has been following dots, have been, has been curiosity and can't quite tell or a hunch. Um, and to d- deny that would be crazy. Um, and that's, so that's kind of where, that's where the territory kind of gets, just for one example, where the territory between hardcore scientist, hardcore new ager and me in the middle trying to say, listen, it doesn't really matter what we call it, but we've got to learn how to, how to have more of it. I'm quite practical in my work. You know, I, I call myself sometimes a practical philosopher. Um, philosophy is, is something you practice as a way of life. It's not something you do or read. Love that. No, it's totally true. And I think sometimes we do get caught up, especially in the new age, because I was on that realm of things at one point and mm-hmm. how to label this and this is what this means. And this is who you're talking to here. And this is that and this. And I'm, then I kind of got away and it's it's more of like like how you say it. I'm like, it's your intuition. Whatever, whatever. Yeah, if it's a spirit guy talking to you, okay, great. If it's If it's your guardian angel, if it's Jesus, Buddha, God, whoever, I mean, whatever, if that fulfills you, so be it. But at the end of the day, it's just knowing how to tap into it that really matters. Yeah, and how to how to know when it's not your intuition? Exactly, your, your anger or your frustration. You know, if you got if you're like going, I've got to call this motherfucker, kind of thing. Excuse my French. <laughs> oh no, you're um, fine. <laughs> that is not intuition, people. That is the voice of your anger <laughs> being really loud, trying to pretend it's a guidance. It's not guidance. In fact, don't do it. Don't call them until you're calm. Um, don't email. You know, all those kind of things. But if you get this quiet sense that something needs to be done by you and doesn't go away and it's kind of, it's really, the words break down because it's such a liquid experience internally. Yes. Um, but we all know when it, we get it and we can practice it. I do believe we can, we can get muscle in discerning intuition. Um, because also it's very interesting when you, when you, oh, what's the word? Obey it. That's an interesting word to use. If you, when you align with your own intuition, it seems to make things better. Just, you know, stuff seems to happen that makes things better. Yes. Um, you know, I get a sense to call that person. I'm like, I call them and then it sort of seems to lead to what I call more thriving and less suffering. And that's what, you know, maybe we had to start thinking, well, what is intuition? Maybe it's, it's the voice of the infinitely wise universe guiding us to do something that will help that universe, which we're part of, m- move towards thriving, wholeness, whatever you want to call it. 
No, totally. And, and it's, and I always tell people too, like the, when you tap into your, your, your intuition, you're going into a universe, like in chiropractic, we call it universal intelligence, but it's, it's right. this, this vastness of all knowing all that is. And it's like, they, it knows better, you know, exactly. It knows better. And, and I think there's a shift happening. There's this great awareness. And I, you know, uh, let me know if you agree, but it's one of those things where people are starting to, they're, they've been, they're getting so logical, stuck in that way, letting that drive them that they're basically burning themselves up, getting depressed. I mean, mental illness is the number one condition in the world right now. Exactly. And, and I, I always tell people it's one of the biggest issues we're not, you're not, we're, 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 when you get too left brain or too logical or too compartmentalized, we, we gray life. We, we take the color out. Right. And I, and I had that myself. In fact, you just used ex- what I was 20 something and I was, didn't know I was depressed, but that's what it was. And someone said, well, why, you know, what, how can you describe what it's feeling? I said, well, it's like being at a, imagine like a Disney, you know, beauty and the beast ball, everyone dancing around and the chandelier, chandeliers are sparkling, but all the colors come out. So it's all still happening, but there's no color in it for me. It's like a black and white movie, and there's no sparkle. And, 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 I, and, it's, and, and I believe depression, and I'm sure that this aligns with the chiropractic way, all our illnesses, mental or physical, and there's components of, of both in every illness, right, mental and physical, mm-hmm. um, are genius uh, signs that something isn't right in the system. There's nothing wrong with depression. It's actually amazing because it says to you, hello, there's some stuff deep within which you're not aligned with and there's some stuff you're carrying around you don't need to carry around anymore. Um, But what we do in the modern world is we don't allow that interior consciousness that when you talked about the universal intelligence, we don't talk about, we don't know how to bring that in. So we just try and kill depression with drugs or CBT, which sort of manages it for a bit, if you're lucky. rather than going deep in and, and going, wow, I feel disconnected from, from the universe, from nature. No wonder I'm depressed. Um, or, you know, as you said, depression is the number one burden on global health. Anxiety is the fastest growing illness in teenagers. Oh, oh man. It's just like, oh, my God, it's so depressing that we're creating a generation of, of teenagers who are already, they're not even waiting till their 20s to be depressed and anxious. They're depressed at 14 because we've taken out all the color and we're just saying the only thing that's important is this test, this grade, this application to this college. And now we're also going to add some digital bullying just to, you know, really um, mix things up a bit. And so we need even more to teach our kids how to feel connected inside so they don't need exam results or other people's approval um, to feel whole and complete. And if we don't do that, we're going to end up with uh, you know, epidemic, it's almost an epidemic right now, mental, mental ill health. I would say we're going to go, it's going to get to a point when almost everyone who doesn't have a wisdom practice is going to be in some way sick. Oh, it's, 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 it's scary to even get into because like depression rises 20% every year, which is crazy. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. then you have anxiety. I love how you brought that up because we're seeing it in younger and younger and younger. Uh, um, you know, seven and eight year olds, five year olds have an anxiety and we're just, you know, this is your, your brain is not even fully logical yet. You should be expressive and intuitive. You're in the theta state brainwave for the most part. Why are you even there? It's not right. (laughs) My, 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 I've got my youngest son is six and he's, um, going through a 
that sort of six, seven transition developmental stage. Uh-huh. Um, he spends almost all his time in the sort of magical lands of his imagination. Love it. Um, we, have him in, we have him in a school that we started ourselves that's aligned oh. with philosophy. Um, because in England, in this year that he's in at school, which is uh, year two, which would uh-huh. probably be year two in the US or, or, or grade three, yep. they have a big exam at the end of the year. It's the first major exam of, uh, um, for the kids around reading and writing. What person invented a, a test, a national test, for a child that should be spending most of their time moving, laughing, playing, learning, uh, connecting? You know, it's madness. And then we wonder why we've got what, the situation we've got. So, you know, it, I, I'm hoping part of, as I'm sure with your work, right, I don't like it that people come to my work because they're so suffering and nothing else has worked. That's ten, gen, when I used to do a lot of coaching, generally people have had therapy, they've gone this, that, and the other, and they don't haven't found the solution. They come to me. So that, that it's, I don't like that situation because what I've learned is that the more you do preventative medicine for yourself, the less uh, crises you have and the less breakdowns you have. Oh, massively. Um, and that's, you know, if you're listening to this now, if you haven't had a burnout or a breakdown or a big physical illness or ME or PTSD or any of these things, does you know, start the start the work now before life starts to impinge on you because it's much easier to do when you're not in crisis and you're not de-resourced, you know, and have nothing left to 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 engage with change transformation with. So true. And, and, and it's, it's just, uh, you, you, you say it so wonderfully with that because it is one of those things where if we don't, and that's the other thing, we're a very reactive society. And if we, we, we need to get away from that. Exactly. And, uh, and even with kids, like here's another thing, I don't know if you know, but like boys, um, actually development a little slower than women. And we know this from a physical side, right? Women, right. girls will grow. They get taller first before boys do. Um, they fully mature at 19. Boys are around 21, hopefully. Um, <laughs> I, just because I know when I was a boy, I'm like, 21? Ah. <laughs> uh, give or take. But um, but even like for, re- like you mentioned the test you guys did for the, the boys to take at like seven years old, right? Six, seven years old. Yeah. And it has reading in there. Yeah. Most boys are not going to be able to do well on that because their brain hasn't developed enough to be ready to take on reading like a girl can at that age. Yeah. My, my son's only just reading like three or four letter words and it's difficult each time. You know, he has to try and he has to effort each time. Yeah. And, um, you know, it's worried me a little bit. I won't, I won't deny it. You know, my wife and I have spent many an hour, you know, just thinking about it. Do we need to support him and, and, and whatever. But the last thing we want is him to be tested and then labeled. Um, because you know his brain is you can see it's just not in the game of reading right right now not when you can go on an adventure and run you know it's not interested basically just not interested and it's and it's because it's not developed there yet and it's exactly. normal that's very normal right because in america we have, go ahead no no you're current yeah and i was just gonna say no it's, it's it's even in the states it's like that where we're testing these kids all oh, six seven oh they can't read you know we have to uh we got to test and see this and next you know they're getting labels and it's just like hold up give them a year or two and let's have them go back to that and you're gonna see wow they're like girls now they can get they're caught up they can read they can do this they can right. take it on that way and that's a couple of things just to pull out of that is is um the importance of developmental stage 
in education, but also in our own journeys. You know, the, there is a developmental journey for human beings. There's a transformational journey where we, our brain kicks in at certain times and does certain things, and then we get access to new capacities. And then when you're in your adult time, you can, you can then start to develop, you know, without, without the brain having to change um, because you're going through adolescence, you can change your brain by engaging in new forms of consciousness. So you can, there's a developmental journey in life. And to avoid that, to pretend it doesn't, that isn't there is one of the great challenges of, of some of the sort of cultural uh, postmodernism and identity politics stuff that we're seeing at the moment. Um, this denial of, 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 um, of uh, uh, what I would call a creative hierarchy that, that you know, a, a 35-year-old who's done 10 years of meditation is going to be have a different level of consciousness from a 16-year-old. And that's just fine. I mean, they're better or worse, it's just different. But the other thing you've got with this crazy world with, with all this uh, testing, and, and but this same uh, you know, the focus on profit, whatever, it's the atheist part, it's the science part, um, thinking it can play and tell the spiritual part of us what to do. In the book, I call this, uh, uh, one of the great British uh, philosophers, David Hume, called this the is-to-ought fallacy. And what that means is science is great at saying you what is. Uh, you, you can measure, let's say you measure a 1,000 kids with their reading at age seven, and there'll be an average, right, of, of how many words or reading age or whatever. Let's say you do it with boys. That's great. That's what science can tell you. What that doesn't tell you is what should be happening doesn't tell you what ought to happen. It just tells you what is. And the problem we've got at the moment in the world, one of the problems is because there's no belief, because we took religion out of the public sphere, there's nothing to replace it. There's nothing moral or conscious to replace it. So um, people now say, well, let's just get the evidence. You know, what's the right reading for my son? Well, there isn't one because guess what? Your son's a biological organism, not an algorithm. And you can't, code it to work in a certain way it's going on its own journey you can give it the right materials and culture and conditions and, and support and your child will be different from any other child and don't bring science in and say that's what the, your child should read or should weigh or should um you know look like because it's impossible as david hume said it's impossible to go from what is science to what should be which is morality spirituality consciousness um ethics all that kind of stuff and that's really one of the most important places we've got in the world is the overreach of science into matters of conscience. Totally. I, could, I, I love the way you express it. I couldn't agree more with you on that. It, it is uh, one of those things. Um, I want to tie back to the book on something. I mentioned this earlier because when I was reading your book, I, I could tell there was a massive shift that happened to you. Um, I, I just <laughs> felt it through the book. I'm hoping that's what I felt uh, and I wasn't projecting. Um, <laughs> You're, you know, I even commend you for the, the plane rides in Africa you took. I was like, there's no way I would ever have gone on those types of planes. But anywho, that's a whole other story. Um, what happened in Africa? What was the biggest thing that kind of like shifted you to get you to go tune deeply in and all that stuff? What, 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 what happened there? So um, just to give it a context, I was very lucky um, to be condemned to spend a year in rural Africa um, in Zimbabwe. Uh, for my 18th year of my 18th birthday. So, and I was teaching and ironically I was teaching science. And, um, as I say, I went out to Africa, a spoilt North London Jew. It's like a Jewish prince, not, not as bad as maybe some, but definitely spoiled. 
um, cool into sort of London-y things, you know, wearing the right clothes and whatever. Uh, but also miserable and kind of depressed and not very happy with myself and bullied and whatever. And the first six months of being in Africa was brutal for me. It was so inconvenient. Like I must just in- uncomfortable and inconvenient. No toilets, no electric lights, um, you know, just a paraffin lamp, um, sleeping on the floor, um, toilets where you go outside and you just, there's a you know, hole in the ground covered in flies and mosquitoes. So, you know, this is not living the dream um, for most people's vacation ideas. And I resisted it. I was like, this is just sucks. The the school sucks. No one listens to me. I can't teach. No one gives me any teaching training. So I was just basically rubbish at my job as well. A lot of the kids were older than me. Um, no one really cared what I was had to say. Um, and every weekend I would try and get out away from the village. As there was one bus that left at 3 p.m. So I used to slightly sneak out from, from school just before I was, the school day broke up. I was, I couldn't leave till the next day. And I jump on the bus down this sandy road for an hour to a local town and then onwards to the city. And I would go and hang out with other, um, Westerners. Um, and then about six months in, I just sort of, I don't know what happened. I don't know whether it just had seeped out on me, the sort of African style. People were so kind to me, you know, the t- other teachers and so welcoming and so innocent and naive. And there was none of this cynicism that I'd been used to. And so I started staying around the, the village more often and staying the weekends. And I would go with the kids to when they played football, soccer, um, at other schools. We'd all jump into the back of a massive flatbed lorry, um, literally you know, 50 kids and three teachers. And then we'd jump, you know, bobble along these track roads for two hours, play a game of football and come back. But in those moments, people started, I was like, felt like I started becoming part of the culture. And the African culture is so different to Western culture. There's this philosophy, the um, really important philosophy that Desmond Tutu and um, Nelson Mandela spent a lot of time talking about called uh, Ubuntu, mm-hmm. which basically means you and I only exist because of each other, for want of a better word. Yes, love that. Um, which is very different from the Western Anglo-Saxon idea, which is, you know, I think therefore I am. I am an individual because I think. And mm-hmm. I'm just me. And I want to own things and be myself and have my own life, the best life, et cetera, et cetera. And this philosophy, I didn't know the philosophy at that point, I should add, just felt this sense of communion, togetherness, being in the world together. We'd have feasts. They would, you know, slaughter a chicken just for me. Um, and I felt accepted uh, and dare I say loved, uh, towards the end of the year and it really changed me as i say in the book it wasn't enough to fully heal all my wounding but it was definitely a very important opening to other forms of thinking other than western thinking other philosophies other practices um and um also just the power of traveling to other countries to realize just how crazy we are in ours So that, that's what I, you, you did it so well explaining in the book. And I just was like, when I was reading this, I was like, this is it. I felt like that was the pivotal moment of everything started to shift and change. Yeah, it, it was definitely a massive opening for me. I, I didn't still have the tools I needed to really get my way out. And I was, there would be more breakdowns ahead and there'd be more, you know, Prozac antidepressants ahead and that stuff and panic attacks. But definitely something shifted in me that it took me a long time to get back to. And that was around that time I also started getting into um, the dance music scene and parties and, and, and festivals. And, and that was also another big 
part of it of my life. I didn't know what was happening, but you know, when I was on a dance floor with a thousand people listening to um, electronic music, um, just like I'd been in a, a party in Africa with the drums beating, something shifted in me. Um, I would now look back at that and say that was ecstatic states, you know, uh, states of 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 union. Um, but I didn't know that at the time. That's awesome. Do you practice any ecstatic dance now? I do. Uh, my wife and I run an ecstatic dance experience. We we take it on tour, um, and we we always have an ecstatic dance experience in the in the, in the middle night of our three day transformational workshop, um, where we get you know big sound system, amazing music, and we take people on the on the journey of of embodying the breakthroughs they've had through the through the workshop, and it's for people who haven't had them yet, helping them have more, you know, helping have a breakthrough. I love that. It's a, it's a powerful thing to do. I did that, but like 10 years ago, I got exposed mm. to that. And it was, uh, some, I mean, I love dancing. I've danced all my life, but it's just cool to um, be able to do it in a different realm and let the music exactly. take you over. And it's like, wait a minute, this is what I get when I dance anyhow, but it's just a little different. This is cool. <laughs> doing it with other people who are also doing it from a intentional place is very powerful. Um, and doing it sober with the view to releasing and restoring and rejuvenating is, is really a beautiful practice. Um, And and as I talk about in the book in more detail, for me, we basically have two major choices for how to have reconnection experiences during the average day. One would be meditative where we quieten down and it's very cool and quiet and blue. I always think of sort of Zen, Zen rivers in China and this sort of blue mist of calm and quietness. Mm-hmm. And then, um, and that sort of cools the ego down. So it doesn't be, it's not so chatty. The other way is ecstatic where we, we almost warm everything up to such a degree. It's hot and red and, and steamy. I always think of India um, <laughs> in these moments, the red earth of India. And we sort of burn off the ego um in those moments and they we have these two tools and and you know whether it's in a monastery whether it's in uh your living room whether it's um playing with your kids which is a form of ecstatic can be a form of ecstatic play as long as you lose yourself in it yes. and i mean the self as in the small little limited separate um needy self we lose that in these practices and we discover what i would call the big self which is where your big self and my big self are somehow connected um, together. I love it. And you made, you made a great point. It's all about losing yourself in the process. Yeah. You know, um, kids do that very well for us as adults when we play. (laughs) They really Um, do. If we can be be present with them enough to to really go where they want to go. Exactly. I mean, I remember in a neuro class I was talking about, uh, it was one of my pediatric training and we talked about the, the instructor was saying how when you, the, there is something that happens when you look at a child, it actually, when you get present and look at a child, they actually help you heal your inner child. And I was like, hold up. Is that why I like working with kids a lot? Hold on. Mm-hmm. Let me think about this for a second. And once that came in my mind, as always, like anything, I will take it and go, <laughs> let me just see how this plays out. And, uh, it's fascinating. It, it, there's a, there's definitely a lot of truth to that. And as, as you said, playing with kids, they can really get you to lose yourself and become and all that. So it's, it's really a great healing tool. So that's good stuff. I like to hear that. Definitely. Um, I got a couple minutes here before we got to wind down, but, um, 
you know, what, what was, who did you end up, like, who was the book for? I know I have, I, I think from chatting with you, I already kind of have an idea, but for the listeners, uh, I was asked this question one time ago and I was like, man, that's such a great question. Um, <laughs> and of course, anytime I hear a great question, I want to ask it then. So who, when you were writing this book, who was it for? I mean, anyone who really wants to have an integrated whole life philosophy from which to live life. Um, and that's really the core of all my work is you can't really make decisions. You can't really live life without a sense of what you're basing your decisions on, what beliefs, what assumptions, what moods, what emotions. And so all my books, all my work is about saying, well, you know, take some time with that, you know, consider what you, how you believe and what you believe. Um, don't just believe what your parents believe or what advertising tells you, um, or what your teacher told you, or what you thought you should do when you were 15 and, and bullied at school or humiliated, you've got to find out for yourself. Right? And so the book is really a, a, partly a journey through my version of that to hopefully inspire others to, to go deep into other areas of their life. Um, but I hope that by the end of it, people f- will have a sense of what a coherent, integrated life philosophy could be like that the welcomes spirituality as much as science uh, and sees starts to see where they fit together and hopefully fit together in your life specifically. Um, so that's kind of really what, what it, who it's for. Um, but this kind of spiritual, not religious thing is really where, where I land it. It's, it's, what does that mean? If someone, you say you're spiritual, not religious, or you feel there's something bigger. Um, what do you mean by that? And, and, and how does it change you? How does it affect you? And why is it useful? And why is it good? And what are you going to teach your kids? And what are you going to teach other people's kids? What are you going to tell your wife or your husband about this or your boyfriend or the person you're dating? And, you know, the book is deep. It's, it's rigorous, but it's also super accessible. Um, and there's a glossary of, of philosophy and wisdom terms at the back, um, which I took a lot of time on. Um, because it took, I studied philosophy myself, I studied science and philosophy, and I still had no idea what all the isms were. <laughs> um, <laughs> I was like, no wonder we're confused. Um, and so, um, yeah, if you want to deep dive into, into wisdoms and, and science and what, how they all work and how they work together, that's what the book's, book's about. I love it. So how can people get a hold of you? Because I'm going to definitely have you back on. I have way more questions to ask. We didn't even go deep into the book like I wanted to, and that's okay. That's why there's always a part two we can make up for this, and we'll make it happen. Uh, but how can people get in contact with you? So uh, easiest way is to go to the center, uh, which is the website. And then from there, you can get to Instagram and Facebook and LinkedIn. Um, you can see our leadership programs, my keynotes, my personal development stuff. Um, and the website is switchonnow.com. And there's a, a, just a little added extra. There's a link at the top called inspiration. Uh, and on that, there's a bunch of free stuff to download. There's maps of, of conscious leadership. There's meditations that I developed for the BBC. Um, there's some samples of books. There's a whole bunch of things that are free. Um, and then you also get informed of, of stuff, but I'm on medium. If you read, uh, medium, I'm on, uh, Huffington post, uh, Twitter, all that sort of, all those usual things, but switch on now.com is the easiest. And if you want to get the book, I would probably go to Amazon, um, or Barnes and Noble kind of thing. Um, because we don't present the book particularly easily on the website, which is something for me to work on. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, I love it. So, uh, spiritual atheist and make sure you get the, the, the second edition. Um, it's got a lot more in it and it's got that glossary at the end. 
Nice. Um, and this will be on the show notes, guys, but definitely um, uh, check out the book. It's a great book. Like I said, I've read about, about 90% of it. And uh, uh, we're going to definitely have Nick back on so I could dive deeper in, and discuss more about the book because it's really a good one. Uh, highly recommend and endorse it. Um, Nick, I want to thank you for being on. This was a pleasure. Um, uh, we didn't get to everything, but I know we're going to. <laughs> I'd love to get more into healing with you and talk about what we've learned about healing and and, uh, and how that works in up into leadership and entrepreneurship and things are some really powerful topics for me about living this stuff in practice. Let's do it. So we'll, we'll definitely set up a time for that. But um, again, thank you for being on. This was a lot of fun. Thank you so much. It's a real pleasure. Thank you for listening to the podcast. For past shows, please visit www.empoweryourreality.com. I hope this show inspired you and added to your life to help you on the journey to rediscover who you really are. To connect with us on Facebook, please visit www.facebook.com forward slash Dr. Vic Manzo. Check us out on Twitter. The handle is Dr. Vic 21. Follow us on Instagram, www.instagram.com forward slash Dr. Vic Manzo. If you were inspired by the podcast, Pay it forward by sharing it with someone who you know can benefit from it. Thank you again for listening to the Mindful Experiment podcast, sharing paths to help you rediscover your infinite potential. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Thanks for tuning into the podcast. If you found this episode to be inspirational, pay it forward by sharing with someone that you know can benefit from this. If this is your first time tuning in, please follow us, connect with us so you don't miss another amazing episode. Until next time, keep rocking and rolling.